This is part two of two of my conversation with two private practice otolaryngologists, Dr. William Blythe and Dr. Drew Lacandro, one of whom sold their practice to private equity and one of whom did not. So listen to learn more about those transactions. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today, we'll be reading Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic TikToks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock TikToks, then locum is the token to unburn the burnt out broken. So how many clock TikToks must talk until docs tick box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt out broken? Enough ticks have talked. The time is now, and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, mend to burnt out ends. For more locum tenens information, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory. It's your final destination. Drew, this next question's for you, because one of the concerns that the younger partners in my practice had was the second bite. So you decide to sell to a private equity partner, but the way the private equity works is they collect a bunch of money from investors, and after five to seven years, they want their investment back. So that's the cycle of these things. So after five to seven years, they're going to sell to a larger private equity firm, as you mentioned, mid-cap. But how much control do you have over that sale? And if you were my age, 42, right, where you have 30 years left to practice, would that potential sale keep you awake at night? Because you really don't have any control. No, an individual physician, that wouldn't be up to any of us, really. Now, in our practice, we have a board and we have three other docs. So, there, so we have four physicians on the board. And so we do have some degree of influence on that. But you're right. Yes, it's a business. All right. This is a business that physicians aren't that familiar with. And private equity, indeed, it's a whole nother level of economics that we don't deal with. So the amount of money they talk about is things that we can't even contemplate, really. But the advantage is that you, as a young doc, have the opportunity to be an owner in this type of a business that is very different from a medical practice. There's very limited people in, in our society that have the opportunity to have equity in these type of business structures. So if you look at the economics, I'm not going to get into the multiples, but you look at those numbers, and you say to yourself, geez, this is uh, incredible. And we, you get an excellent buyout initially. And if that second exit occurs based on how well the organization does, how many practices are acquired, and the track record speaks for itself, you can do extremely well and then continue to build from there, continue to practice medicine, continue to do well. But there's a huge value. There's a time value to money. You get a, just think if, if you've got a, a great and equity event three years ago, invested in the stock market, where would it be today? Whereas if you're just working and working, 
it's hard to match that. Anyway, so that would be, yeah, it's a tremendous opportunity. Certainly nothing that anybody would have in a hospital-owned employment situation or university or, you know, private practice doesn't offer that as well. Now, now, counting what Bill says, he's got a great private practice. It sounds like he's terrific. I'd go work for him. He sounds like a great guy and everybody's happy. It's fantastic. But many practices are not like that. It's, I have different partners and we all have AAA personalities and we didn't always agree on the same thing and we're in a competitive market. And so every practice is unique. It has its ups and downs. The only other comment I'll make when you join a private equity firm, there's objectivity. So if a young guy joins a private practice and you have a senior doc who particularly has leverage or control over that practice, uh, it's no longer the case. So it's a level playing ground in a professional managed company. So if I can paraphrase what you just said about the potential for financial gain and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm 42. I get a significant amount of money up front that I can then invest in the market. And then five to seven years down the road, I've got my remaining investment that I can choose to sell or not. Some You can mm -hmm. often keep it in there for the next liquidity event. But now I've got a significant nest egg. So even if I'm unhappy with whoever it is I, they sell to, I've got a good amount of money in the bank and therefore leverage to maybe move out of the area. Or if I'm able to sleep better at night because what would have taken me maybe another 10 years to make or more, I now have now. So that gives me leverage to stay or go if I choose. Correct. Yes. And, okay. and I think it's unlikely that the second acquisition company would really change the structure in any way, change your salary, change compensation. It's not really in anybody's interest. It's in all these companies' interest to, to continue and invest in your own market, in each practice, and move further with acquisition. It's just that model is one that really our interests are aligned. They make money if you stay. They make less money if you leave because recruiting a physician, especially an otolaryngologist, because there aren't many of us, is very hard to do. I'm just a cynic. So I don't think they want to keep you happy. I think they want to keep you just not unhappy enough to leave, which I think is something very different. But that's not true necessarily. It's just how I think about someone well, who's in, I mean, keeping who's you in happy. finance, not a practice, who, not someone who practices with right. me every day. So keeping the doc happy is what? Keeping us busy, keeping us seeing patients and full support. That's how doctors stay happy. Now, sure, if you are involved in a private practice and you love it and it's great, that's even better. But most of us out there, especially the younger docs, I think their goal is to take care of patients, get a lot of good support, join a practice that has a lot of strength behind it. Just be a good doc and be busy and have full support. I want to say I have a preference and then I have four points right there on my card. The preference, I was going to say this, the process that my group went through was fairly simple. And with the group that we went the farthest down the road, and this is how we did it. We disclosed everything as honestly as we could. We opened our books for the company to come in and look at everything. We had nothing. We were as honest as we could. It happened to be during the middle of COVID. So we had plenty of time to go through this information. We gave everything to them and we waited for them to all make us a proposal. They came and they made a presentation and gave us a proposal in writing. My partners and I did it very simply. We took that proposal and gave it to our accountant, to our practice manager, and to our wealth management person. These are the people that their job is to, and to do financial analysis. 
And we have a group with a local investment company that does our ERISA, that do our retirement, they do everything. And we had them, we said, here's our books for the past five years. Here's the offer that we're looking at going into. Tell us from purely a financial standpoint, do we do it or not? They all said, don't do it. We didn't do it. It was real simple. If they had said, do it, we would already have been there. Now that has to do with this very with the specifics of the buyout, and that's going to be individual to different groups. Drew doesn't know what I was offered. I'd have no idea what he was offered for his buyout. That's that's the way it works. The offers we've been made, the people that made it, I'm not a financial guy. If I if I invest in a stock, it's going to tank. So I have somebody out, hire professionals that do that for me. And they're very good at their job. And, and so we've had people that have done that for us. So that's how, that was a process that we made. And it just didn't make financial sense for us in the context that we were in. But let me just address the second bite. Let me just say that. Think a couple of things. The first caveat is, do you need to sell your group? And that can be very individual. It could be because of local competition. It could be because the, the primary care base is being bought up by systems. It could be because the local hospitals are employing doctors and you're having pressure. And that's number one. Right now, we don't need to sell our group. The second thing is this, and, and this is one of the things that the financial guys said, and I, Drew, I'd be interested in your perspective on this. But his point was this. You can only sell your practice once. Once you sell it, it's gone. You can't ever sell it again. Now, yes, the second bite, true. But I'm talking about my practice. East Alabama Ear, Nose, and Throat PC can only be sold one time. If this idea of private equity, ownership, bunching them together, forming a larger group and selling it in a second bite, if that's a successful business model, if that's one that is going to have long range wealth, if it's a good successful business model, one way you can look at it is it's easy to get, it's, it's better to get in early. But on the other hand, it may be that if it's valuable now, it may be even more valuable in the future because the, the supply is declining, not increasing. And so our thought on it is if it's if the deal's good now, it's going to be even better in the future because they're not making very many more practices like ours. And then my financial guy told us this. And again, Drew, I'm interested in your comments on this. He said it was very simple. If you can afford to retire with your initial buyout, do it. If you can't, if you can't retire with the initial buyout, I'm not talking about the money you make in the subsequent years of employment or the second bite. He said, if you can't retire with your initial buyout, do not do it. And obviously that's how, and again, this is just purely financial advice from our guy. And obviously that's going to be contextual on whether you're senior in your practice. If you have less than five years of practice, then it's a no brainer. It very much is. If you have 20 years to practice like I do, it may not be as good a deal. And then the last thing I'll say is this, the, the thing that made us finally decide not to sign on, to not sell our practice was the CEO of one of the companies. He and I were in a telephone conversation and we were going back and forth about the value of our practice and the buyout, the cost opportunity of the investment. And he finally said to me these words, he said, it really depends on whether or not you buy into this idea of the second bite. Do you buy into it or not? Yes or no? And I told him, no, I buy into the value of my practice today. And that's the only thing, and, I'm, and I, that's just me. I'm very conservative. I'm very fearful of the gamble on the future. Part of that is because we don't need to sell it right now and because I probably do have 20 years to practice and I can only sell it once. 
So those were the decision-making processes and the reason behind that we decided not to. It could change tomorrow. If the company came back with the exact same contract with different numbers in it, that might be different. But for right now, that was our decision-making process. I'll just respond, respond to two of those. Yeah, Bill said, first of all, the price and the timing. Right? Is it better to sell early? Is it better to sell to wait and hold? Just like you said, I'm not a stock picker. You know, we, the other guys that we know probably better at this. Who knows? I don't know the answer to that question. The supply of ENTs are going down. Is there, are the purchase price is going to go increasing? Are they going to go down? I can't answer that question. That's too difficult to predict, really. As far as the second bite and compensation moving forward. So we still, we're still compensated. We are compensated. Yeah, we don't, moving forward, our, our income, our take-home pay is less than what we got before because you got the significant buyout. But it's still a good salary. It's still good. We're making better than the average otolaryngologist if you look at some of the data from MGMA. And that's true for all of us. But um so sure, you can, you don't have to just retire and just the buyout. You can still continue to work, do better. Probably most docs do in a hospital employment situation. But yes, with the opportunity for equity and the second exit, just look at the trial. My advice would be look at the track record of the company that you're considering. Look at the, look at their experience. Look how many, or look how many businesses they brought to market and successfully exit. And that I think would give you the answer. And this is not, private equity is not going to go away. This is not just a, just a short one, two blip in the market. There's a ton of money being invested. And we physicians, why this is an opportunity, you own something. Why not take that opportunity to, to value that? I agree with that. Bill, if I can push back on, uh, on something you said just a little bit, you had said, if my practice is doing well now, why wouldn't I wait until there is a threat? Sure. That's not what you said, but I'm paraphrasing. Because I think if you wait, we don't know. The answer to two of these issues is we don't know what the future is going to bring. So if there isn't a threat, right, if the hospital does start hiring otolaryngologists, now the value of your practice is worth less than what it is now. So then in, re in using your retrospectoscope, maybe you should have sold now, but we can't predict the future. So we don't know. And then with regards to the amount of money that that second bite makes, right? There's another issue. We can't predict the future. Is it that all of these private equity firms are buying up ENT and other medical practices because money's cheap right now because interest rates are so low? So they're doing it because they can and eventually they become over leveraged and then they're going to collapse, right? Is that a possibility? Can we invest in private equity on our own? I'm actually going to do a separate podcast with my listeners probably know Ryan Inman, who's a financial advisor who advises exclusively physicians. So we're going to be talking about other ways to invest. Can we invest our money in private equity? They're telling us that we can't, but he's going to tell us that there are ways to invest in them. Are we then non-diversified so that we've taken a significant amount of our practice, we've put it in someone else's private equity where we don't necessarily have so much control over it and our assets aren't diversified as they could have been. So I think there's both of these issues need to be considered when you're looking at the amount of money that they're willing to pay and what you consider might happen in the future. Totally agree with everything you said. And I and I think that's the value of this type of podcast is to hear from different perspectives. Drew is a very bright, smart otolaryngologist and businessman and he made a made one decision and I made another. We you know you don't know. We do we just don't know. We don't know what the value is going to be in the future. You're absolutely right. If UAB 
hires a bunch of otolaryngologists and come puts it in our hospital regionally, my practice is all of a sudden not worth very much. And I'm sure that there are a lot of those considerations. You just don't know what you don't know. Although I'll tell you, they're going to be hard pressed to find someone who's going to do a cochlear implant one day and a neck dissection the next. I've got cochlear implant and a neck dissection tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know? Maybe I've heard you speak before. <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Drew. Uh, and, and because I know that part of uh, the model that you guys have is is heavily invested on you, the, each of the individual practice, maintaining your identity and doing what you do well, continuing to do that. But here's an analogy that I, I've given to other people that I don't know if it's fair or not. And that is this. If you look in any town anywhere in the world, what are the best restaurants? Where do you really want to go? You want to go somewhere where there's a chef who owns his own restaurant and has put his heart and soul into everything from the menu to the napkins, to the flowers on the tables, to the entrees he's cooking, and he's poured his life into that. And I think that there's very few people that go to culinary school that their lifelong dream is to work for Applebee's. Okay. I'm not comparing your practice to Applebee's. Don't say that now. And there's nothing wrong with Applebee's. I'm from Alabama. We like Applebee's. But I do think that my father is... Is, is a doctor, was a doctor, practicing doctor, and he owned his own practice. And I take a lot of pride from our practice, and it is us. And I, I hate to see that go away. I, I hate to see people go to get trained to go work for another entity, whether that's a hospital, an institution, or even a private equity firm. I have a bunch of friends that are dentists, and I always hate to see them go work for Aspen Dental. I'm sure that it's perfectly fine. I'm sure that it's perfectly fine and they take good care of people. My best friends have their own practice with their name on the door. And my best friend is a veterinarian and he still has South College Vet just right down the street. My dog's there right now. And he takes a lot of pride in his practice. And I think you lose something when you sell out the Banfield and work in Petco. And I'm not saying you work in Petco, Drew. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I think that I have this fear, perhaps, of becoming the chef that works for works for Bonefish Grill and doesn't own my own own restaurant, or that I'm the dentist that works for Aspen Dental, or I'm the veterinarian that works for Banfield. I think I have a fear of that. I want to maintain the ownership of my practice that I have a tremendous amount of pride in. I hear you, Bill. Absolutely, yes. And private practice is certainly a wonderful world if you get a nice situation. You got good partners. It's certainly, that's what we all knew when we first became docs. Absolutely. As far as my experience, I can, that's what I'll just say. It hasn't changed at all. It's still our practice, still my name. There's nobody else's name on the door. Our PE firm has, I think, one logo at the bottom of one piece of paper. There really is no change. Our referral docs don't know any difference. Our patients certainly have no clue whatever business supports. So I look at really as management company that's providing business support. They have really, they don't tell you how to practice medicine. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it does it is true. We do what we do and sure, they actually help us. One of my docs, he started to do radio frequency ablation of thyroid nodules. And that was a high-tech piece of equipment that the company purchased and he's doing well. In another affiliate practice, they brought in in-house anesthesia to do some of these in-office procedures. And so they invested in that. So yeah, they, they can invest in some ancillaries. Look at our, look at our field. It's a lot of high tech, a lot of equipment. 
And I'm sure you'll probably say, geez, do I really need that other tower, that image guided system or what it is? And you just show a pro forma to the company and they've never hesitated to invest. So no, you maintain your personality. There's no difference in the identity, the practice, your referral docs to your patients. It just gives you more support. Are you concerned about legacy? Because there is going to be that next liquidity event and next liquidity event. So eventually it might not be as it is right now. And we've got residents coming out and medical students who are going to become residents. So the field of otolaryngology, or is this a legacy? Private equity is all about building for the future, investing in these practices. And they want these practices to, to do well down the road. So I would argue the opposite. You join a, a practice like ours, you have a massive amount of support to maintain that legacy, that identity, and that market strength of that practice versus join one other fell in practice somewhere and he retires and something changes and the practice dissolves. So if anything, I think uh, a partner like we have increases the um, strength of the uh, long-term practice itself. One one of my partners, and I'm not sure, I think he was listening to the podcast, maybe he still is, AJ Chitkara. He's a laryngologist closer to the Hamptons than I am on Long Island. And he was originally in practice with his dad. It was just the two of them. And then there was, they saw that as not a viable way to practice. So they joined with a larger group, seven or eight of them. This is very common on Long Island, let alone the New York metro area, just to give people an idea of how big this, the area and how many otolaryngologists there are. So he joined with them. And then eventually they saw the writing on the wall and joined ENT and Allergy, which currently has 160 partners, I think maybe 170 now, 220 physicians total. So each step of the way, there was a loss of control and a loss of their individual identity to become part of something larger, which was a, a hedge against the future. So to what you're saying, that private equity is just the next iteration of that. You're not really losing, you're just evolving. You could look at that, but your analogy, you said that smaller group merged with a seven-man group, probably changed their name, and then that group changed their name to become ENT and Allergy. In the model we're in, each practice maintains its individual identity. So it's a loose affiliation, really, for support services. But we have, frankly, we have another group that um, joined our organization, and they're just down the street, right downtown from one of our main offices in Atlanta, and they have five docs, and they've been now with us over a year. And we never really see them. We don't interact. We don't, we're still somewhat competitive actually, but we're under the same, same organization umbrella, but they have their name. We have our name and our paths are not crossing. I can tell you that much. Do you share an EMR with them? No. No. We do not. Interesting. I think that's also an interesting discussion. I'm actually on a on Zoom calls tomorrow night with, with the people looking at, uh, CINs and, and ACOs. And I think that's, that's one thing that we've been looking at in Alabama, to be perfectly honest with you. In Alabama, there's seven regional uh, hospitals, and each of those cities have one or two major groups. And our question is, is there a way that we can form a group either under one tax ID number or not, or form a CIN or ACO where we can have the advantages of scale? have the advantages of regional regional penetrance for the entire state where we can have power to negotiate contracts, but still allow each practice to maintain full financial independence. And that's something that's very complicated to arrange. 
It's also very hard to herd cats. And really, the, m most of the models that have done that successfully have had a big anchor group that has been at the center of that, that's been able to have the resources and manpower to, to make that happen. But I'm very interested in it. And so I think that's another question that our, our listeners need to be aware of, is that there may be something other than hospital employment or selling your practice that might be some way that we can regionally or, or nationally even join together to, to get some of the advantages of economies of scale. Economies of scale out. and better contracts, because the more leverage you have, the more you can get from them. That's how the hospitals do it. A, a three-man group in, just look at my group, we have zero leverage. You can't negotiate with, the only leverage we have is that we're the only provider. And that's a lot of leverage, especially like from, from Medicaid, because Medicaid has to provide it at whatever reimbursement people will provide the service for. And when you have no competition with the only providers, it gives you some leverage. But going to Blue Cross or Humana or Aetna or United Healthcare, just you know, zero leverage if you're a small group. Really, you can't just stop taking. You can to your own peril. But then the patients have nowhere to go. So then they're going to. Wouldn't they raise hell with the insurer until they started, you started taking them again? That's a tricky road to go down, that's for sure. Ethically uh, challenged. I think that you're, there are definitely some advantages. I think I want to be very honest about that. There's definitely advantages of some big groups, and there's definitely advantages of the organization that Drew has joined, one of which is definitely contract negotiations, unquestionably. And then maintaining a referral base. We're all going to have to, hospitals and systems don't have to purchase you nor your competition. They only have to purchase your referring doctors. And it's a lot more cost-effective for them to buy 10 family practice doctors than it is to buy two ENT doctors and all that we bring with it. And if they cut off your referrals, you're out of business. So uh, that's all, it's all important. And, and I, I can see where a larger group would be advantageous in that setting. Drew, any final thoughts? Final thoughts. Interesting model. The world is changing, right? We see tremendous amount of change in in all. Look, just look around in the past several years, COVID and all the implications. Advice to other practices, new docs, just take a look at different options out there and see what the pros and cons are. Keep your eyes open, do your diligence and make good decisions. The only thing I would say is what I say every time. That is ENT is the best specialty in medicine and we have the best people. And I, I think that there's a lot of different options. And for the young people, focus on taking good care of your patients and you'll make more money than you deserve no matter what model you go into. And I wish you guys both the best of luck. And I really appreciate the honesty and good. It was a pleasure meeting both of you. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. And good evening. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, men to burnt out ends. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. 
Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.